Good morning, beloved. We'll continue our study in Ecclesiastes here this morning. Uh, We won't have Sunday school next week. We'll pick it back up the week after Thanksgiving, okay? Uh, This morning, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 20, the remainder of chapter 5. I'll begin by reading the first three verses, and then we'll look at it over the next 45 minutes. Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Uh, Verse 8 begins a larger section here um, that goes on actually to the end of chapter 6. And the theme is is poverty and wealth. Poverty and wealth. uh, The emphasis of which is the vanity of pursuing riches, pursuing wealth as an end in themselves. The end, the goal is, is wealth. Um, the pursuit of wealth uh, for its own sake, this is like grasping for uh, the wind, the, the power uh, and pleasure and peace of mind that people think that it provides. It's vanity because it does not. And as way of reminder, uh, that phrase, under the sun, is a key phrase, as you know, in Ecclesiastes. And it has to do with naturalism or uh, the humanistic view of, of life lived here on uh, the earth. It's an anthropocentric as compared to a theo, theocentric uh, view of life or a world view. The correct view of life is to have an above the sun or an under heaven worldview, and that is with sovereign creator in mind, uh, the one true God who rules and reigns over his creation. The key verse today is verse 10. If you look there, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with, the, with his income. This is also vanity. These are the people who believe that wealth will give <clears throat> them the power that satisfies. Now, it might provide power, but it will never ultimately satisfy. And this is what he's about ready to break down in this section. Uh, these are the people who think that riches in themselves will give them peace of mind. And the depiction here is man's pursuit of mammon as God. Small g. Mammon as God. So Koaleth here will show us that that mammon is the God who actually fails man. He will ultimately fail man at every level, every time. So this theme, the vanity of seeking wealth and sensual pleasure, this was introduced to us, as you well remember, back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and that was uh, by the avenue of hedonism, materialism, and, and seeking to fulfill sensual pleasure. Now, we looked at that. Um, it, it's the experience of wine, women, and song, and, and beautiful buildings, and anything that money will buy so as to, to please oneself. The preacher king was an incredibly wealthy man. Um, We believe it obviously to be Solomon who had great wealth and uh, um, in his time as he had uh, pulled away from 
honoring the one true God and many, marrying many women and seeking to please those women by building altars to these false gods. We believe that that was the season in which he, he pursued um, this kind of pleasure, and he certainly had the money to do it. So he, like everyone else who travels down um, this particular road, um, will experience the delusion uh, that power and, and peace of mind can be purchased. And over and over again, what does he say this is? Vanity. Vanity. This is the God who will always fail, and this is a God, mammon, who actually increases frustration and anxiety. That's what we see in this section. So the Bible, is, as you know, um, it never says that money or wealth in itself is evil. Uh, money's not evil, but the love of it is. The worship of it is. So to pursue money for love's sake, he says, is vanity. It's like trying to grab hold of vapor. Now, living as we do in, in the midst of a hedonistic society, we too, as believers, are continually, are we not, continually tempted um, so as to be seduced by things, placing our faith in things so as to provide us comfort. It's a temptation. We all face it. And then we end up trusting in wealth, trusting upon riches, and we're, we're lured in by, by these things constantly. We live in the richest nation in the world, so we're, we're faced with this all the time. So we need to hear, heed the wisdom of Solomon, and, and every time we're drawn into this um, desire and pursuit for the God of mammon, um, we have to maintain that above-the-sun view and, and abandon that desire and go back to the wisdom of Solomon that says, fear God and keep his commandments. So we come and gather together to be sanctified in the truth. And, and one of the things that the truth does is sanctifies us out of that way of thinking. So this is, uh, uh, there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned here. Now, uh, the larger theme overall is made up of individual units in, this, in, the, in these parts of chapter 5 and in chapter 6. And he starts here with um, bureaucratic injustice. That's the first little subunit. It's bureaucratic injustice as a means of pursuing the God of mammon. In verses 8 through 9, uh, the main message here is quite simply this. Expect injustice in the world. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, when we see injustice in the world, it's often due to bureaucracy. The design of which is supposed to lessen evil. It's supposed to lessen evil. It's supposed to lessen corruption in any society, as, quote-unquote, one person keeps his eye on another down the ladder. That's the structure, but bureaucracy, as you well know, is about following routine, filling out the right form, answering, answering the right official. And although it can and, and should provide a chain 
of protection, of, of protection, oftentimes it's a chain of corruption. That's the idea. And it consumes the wealth of the people. So the preacher king, he isn't saying that every single system, bureaucratic system, is corrupt, but that corruption is indeed common um, within the government. So the love of money, the God of money, it, it cannot defeat bureaucracy. You know, they might pat you on the back and you might have some leeway and, and, and that type of thing, but they'll eventually pick your pocket too. In verse 9, notice here now the rule of leaders um, is explained a little bit further. Uh, this is a very terse verse. The ESV translates it positively. If you read that there, uh, more or less uh, to be translated like this, the best defense against government corruption is an upright king. Now, that is, society needs a ruler with the wisdom of a Solomon who values economic freedom, um, who will encourage his people to prosper in cultivating their own fields. Now, you'll notice a footnote at the bottom of your page if you have an ESV, and it says that the meaning of the Hebrew verse here is uncertain. A positive translation of that verse doesn't fit the context of what we're looking at. So, in context to the theme, most scholars read this verse in the negative. Probably better translated by the NIV, which says this, The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Now, in that reading, the king is part of the problem, not the solution. And that was very common in the ancient world, that, that kings were given to corruption, to greed. And that is to say that corruption leads all the way up the ladder those who are watching over one another, all the way up to the king. And the idea here is this. A land lays fallow for some time. And then, as soon as it's cultivated, everyone inordinately taxes it, including the king. Everyone gets their hands in the pie, is the idea. And again, that's not to say that all kings are corrupt, He's not arguing here that we ought to disobey government. Amen? Romans 13 is perfectly clear. We're commanded to obey governing authorities, and we're commanded to pay our taxes. However, Coalesce says, don't be naive, but realize that governing authorities are prone to corruption. You see this all over the world. The countries on the continent of Africa, you see corruption when you walk through the street how the people are oppressed, and the the governing officials. You know, America has sent down like a trillion dollars down there. And you don't see it anywhere. But the people on top, that that chain of command, they live high on the hog. (laughs) They live high on the hog. So this is a, a huge problem in many countries in the world. So, as you know, we we pray here pretty much every Lord's Day for, for righteousness and godly leaders over our cities, counties, state, the federal government. We pray for, for judges to rightly interpret our Constitution, the exact opposite of what happened this past summer. 
the whole gay marriage thing. And that's a clear example of when injustice and unrighteousness, that's when they're enshrined as the law of the land. It's corruption. But Isaiah warns such officials. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe means that there's a judgment coming. (laughs) And if they don't taste it here in time, they will taste it in eternity. Unless that judgment was poured out upon the Son and they receive Him by faith. Repent and are forgiven. So judgment will land somewhere. It's either landed on the Son of Almighty God or they will be recipients of that wrath. So woe, he says. So we have to ask the Lord in the days in which we live for for courage. We must pray for wisdom um, and for love all the while remembering that, that we're exiles on earth, pilgrims in the midst of all this. And that's the way it's always been for God's people. Now, we already saw something, as you remember, as regards this type of injustice back in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Even there was wickedness, I said in my heart. And then in the place of righteousness, there was in, in wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So we have to remember, just as there is a time for every matter under the sun that we looked at in chapter 3, there's also a time for judgment on the unjust. All injustices of the earth will be dealt with. Um, eventually. So the preacher king reminds us that we ought not to be surprised when when people in authority over us uh, abuse their power. He says, don't be shocked at this because eventually injustices reach all the way up the ladder, but ultimately the God who dwells above the sun uh, will deal with it. Now, everyone has a tendency to you know, oppress someone. And even, in the, even the poor would oppress someone if they could. But they can't because they're at the bottom. So that's the idea of human fallen nature. That we're, we are all outside of the grace of God in Christ Jesus will oppress someone somehow. But yet on the other side of the coin, there are the, the, the poor, some of whom manipulate the system. They work the system from the bottom up. Um, there are those who abuse the system. Uh, you know, you think about countless people who have self-induced um, disabilities. The folly of drug abuse. And then eventually the government pays you. I know people like this. I know people, these are, I know Christians who don't work, who should work, who can work, who are somehow emotionally distraught because of all the drugs they did in the 60s. And now they get a government check. That's abusing the system from the bottom. May it never be so with a Christian. So moving then from the lust for wealth in a a bureaucratic context um, that results 
and injustice, ultimately. He brings it down now uh, to where the common man lives, uh, for the most part, to, to, to show us that public officials aren't the only ones on this planet who, who long for wealth to satisfy their soul. Verses 10 through 17, quite simply, uh, it could be captioned with, with these words, money doesn't satisfy. It cannot. The love of money, it's a main theme of all scripture. That the love of money is the root of all evil. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Uh, The key word there is love. He who loves. And it's referring to a linear aspect of, of action. With, 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 a, with a certain duration. It's just ongoing. It's this ongoing passion, this ongoing seeking. It's a drive. It's a strong affection for something that's being communicated here. And, and the idea is this. It's to chase after something until you're panting. You're panting. And you just keep running. You want it so badly. You long for it. Wanting more, you get more but you're never satisfied. You know, John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men that has uh, lived in America, well, he's dead now, but he was asked by a reporter in his day this question, how much money, Mr. Rockefeller, is enough? To which he famously answered, just a little bit more. That's the idea, panting. That's the duration. Having more money than he ever needed or ever possibly could spend, his desire was a want for more. Panting after this, craving after this, thinking it will satisfy, Coalesce says it never will. Riches are a false god. They do deliver temporary happiness. Think about material goods. You want something for so long. You get it, you're excited. It's great. You enjoy it. After a season, it wears off. It's gone. It could be a new car. It could be a new boat, if you're into boating. It could be vacations. It could be a pair of shoes. A pair of shoes. That reminds me of a funny story. A number of years ago, our kids were small. How long ago was that when they got that phone, that prank phone call? You remember? <laughs> this guy calls up. My wife answers the phone, and he said something twisted and perverted because I could tell by the look on her face she looked shocked. So I grabbed the phone, and I go, I go, hello? And there was silence. I go, hey, what do you need? The guy answers like this, what do I need? I need a lot of things. He says, I need a new car. I need a new girlfriend. I need a new job. I need a new pair of shoes. So I said, they gave me the opportunity to, to preach the gospel. I said, you know what else you need, buddy? He says, why don't you tell me what I need? I said, <laughs> I said, you need the only one who can forgive you of your sins, the one who has power to send you to hell. And then I went on to preach Christ. And uh, he was dead silent. I thought he hung up. I go, hello? He goes, wow. He goes, I've never heard that before. He, he said, I said, why are you calling me? He goes, you know, honestly, I'm just a telemarketer who was really bored. <laughs> And the point was, you know, his need, I need a lot of things. That's, that's the idea of, man, I need a lot of things. You know, I need a new car, I need a new wife, I need a new home, I need a new pair of shoes, whatever. Anyway, I don't know if that fits the context, but it's a funny story. 
You know, we, we might say we'd never be like that, but we are in many ways like that, right? It shows up. I'm like that. You know, people in the past, they joined the great gold rush of the West, right? They all come plowing out West for the gold rush. People run off to, they don't come West, they go East to the casinos, looking for the quick payoff, you know, or they, you know, spend all their hard-earned money on lottery tickets, whatever, it goes on and on. And then some preachers even tap into this fallen human craving, and they preach another gospel. And and they preach to, quote-unquote, bless the hearts of a gathered people, whether they're gods or not, it's not clear. And what they do is they preach the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. And they tap into this, you know, and and it's prefaced with this. If you want the blessings of God, you just sow that seed money. Just sow the seed. You ever heard that? Sow the seed of blessing. And $1,000 would typically do it (laughs) to their particular ministry. You know, it's it's done by faith. Step out. It's corruption. It's manipulation. It's evil especially when those who are to be preachers of the word get into the game. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why? Because they could never satisfy. Yet we think they can. It's human nature. It's fallen human nature to think that they can. The more we have, the more we want. We do. So panting to to increase your wealth here, it doesn't satisfy uh, the appetite for things. It actually increases the appetite. It increases the appetite. In in the end, it's pursuing vapor, he says. It's empty, it's futile, it won't satisfy. Now, another rude awakening for the one who pants after riches here uh, for the love, that is for the love of money, verse 11, it says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So here's the man. Yes, he's, he's achieved his goal. He's made it to the top, so to speak. And now he, he watches his possessions be devoured by others. Sidney Gray Danis uh, wrote this in his commentary on Ecclesiastes. Quote, When people become rich, they'll need a maid to clean their house, a gardener to trim their lawn, a nanny to raise their kids, a chauffeur to drive their car, an accountant to keep their books, a broker to invest their money, a bodyguard to protect themselves and their family. All these people and more have to be paid. In addition, the tax man will require a good cut, and charities will fill their mailboxes with requests for donations. They will also discover that they have many so-called friends who would like to receive who would like to relieve them, rather, of some of their money, end quote. In other words, you see it come, and you see it go. The man is, he's reached the top, and this is what he witnesses. So this is to work hard, and it's to see others live off the fruit of your labor. 
That's the idea. It could be relatives. Ask any NFL football player who gets drafted. Ask any NFL football player when he gets drafted how many phone calls he gets from his family. And he didn't know they were his family. Um, It could be oppressors of government. It may be those who complain about the government who themselves are freeloaders and they're sponges. You know, you leave a sponge on the sink long enough and you don't really clean it out, you know what it starts to do? Start to smell. That's what sponges are like. And also an increased income moves you to a new tax bracket. <laughs> and then you watch your money go that away that away that way as well. So we have to emphasize once again wealth, money, income, success, that's not the problem. The pursuit of it as an end in itself, that's the problem. The love of it, the panting after it. So the problem, again, is the love of money, the adoration um, of that which money can buy. See, those who do not love money or do not pant after things will find themselves content with, with what God who dwells above the sun provides. Those who love it, they're driven by it. They're never satisfied. So we all have personal things. We all have riches. We all have investments, valuables, comforts, enjoyments. And they, we ought to be thankful for them, and they ought to be thankfully enjoyed. You're not saying, he's not saying you should not enjoy life. We've read that over and over again. Amen? Enjoy the work of your life. Enjoy the toil of your hands. Enjoy, all the, enjoy the food and the drink. We can enjoy success. But the perpetual desires of of those who love money are never satisfied. They always want more. That's the idea. So don't misinterpret this, you know, for you to want to go home and say, well, I guess we can't enjoy today. I guess we can't enjoy our house or our pool if you have one or whatever. Enjoy it and thank God for it. Amen. You know, the proverb of our own culture rings true here. The best things in life are... Free. You don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. God in his grace supplies our needs. So here we see riches don't solve every problem, but they do bring additional problems. We see one problem in verse 11. You watch it come, you watch it go. And then here in verse 12, panting after riches. Okay, that's the idea now. The panting after uh, becomes a personal, physical liability. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So, that is to say the increase of goods it doesn't bring increased rest, but only amplified anxiety. That's the idea. Money can't buy sweet sleep. You can put yourself to sleep. You can drug yourself to sleep. You know, I take some of those, uh, you know, I've had back pain and back pain for years, so sometimes I take, uh, what are they, Advil PM? Those blue pills. Huh? Oh, Aleve PM. Take a couple of those before bed so I don't crick and crack. But, man, I wake up feeling like I have a hangover. I feel, you know, groggy. Yeah, I slept well, but I don't feel like I slept well. You get the idea? I think that's what anxiety does. Now, the person who labors, the context here is, is, is one who, who works the soil. So it's an agricultural context. 
he works hard. He, he's into his work. And he makes enough here to make a living. Sometimes he makes more. i got a bunch of contractors at my house right now. Contracting business. Sometimes you're living high on the hog. There's a lot of work. Sometimes there are seasons that are slow. You have less, but you still eat, just not as much. And you're content and you're thankful. You put in a hard day's work. It might be at a computer with your mind. It might be with your hands digging a ditch. But you put in a hard day's work. The sleep, therefore, is going to be sweet. You go to bed with a contented heart. You know, being an owner of the business, of any business, is great. But do you not have more to think about, brother? Amen? There's more to think about. If you're the guy digging the ditch, amen, go dig the ditch. Do it to the best of your ability. Whatever it is that we do, do it to the best for the glory of God. You can go home. You're not going to have that much to think about in your next course in the ditch the next day. But being the owner of the business, you have more to think about. There's more responsibility. There's more people to think about. So naturally, um, the temptation there could be to be so focused on the business that we don't spend proper time with our family or church family <laughs> under God's word. So having made the point here that, that people who chase after wealth, who, who pant with the love of money in, in all that it, they think it will satisfy, it won't. It's pretty simple. The teacher moves to a second point. It's evil when people do not enjoy their life. Verse 13, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. This is the idea of the miser. Who those riches and whose and those riches rather were lost in a bad venture. There's a, here's one bad business deal where he lost everything. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. He didn't even care about his own son. So this guy in verse 13 has worked very hard, but to his own hurt. Consumed with pursuing wealth, denying himself actually pleasures in life. That's the idea. So tragedy strikes. He loses somehow, in a failed business deal and a bad venture. And again, it isn't wrong to have money. It isn't wrong to invest money. But we should never put trust in it as the idea because it can vanish just like that. Gone. So the more you have, the more there is to worry about. And it can be lost in a moment of time. You know, there are people who have kept their riches and never enjoyed them let alone anyone else being able to enjoy them. Listen to this. I pulled this from a sermon series I did on Ephesians years ago. In 1998, American Heritage Magazine compiled a list of the 40 richest Americans in history based on 1998 dollars. There were 39 men and one woman on the list. The richest American woman who ever lived was Hetty Green, whose fortune when she died in 1916 was estimated at more than $100 million, which would be equivalent to over $17 billion in today's dollars. Now, she was known not for her great wealth, but for her great stinginess. Listen to this. She was born into a prosperous whaling family in New Bedford, Massachusetts. 
And uh, she had a lifelong love affair with numbers and money. And at the age of six, she used to tag along with her father, reading him the financial newspapers. Six. When she turned 13, she began working as a bookkeeper in the family business, invested her earnings in the bonds market, and established a pattern of conserving, conservative investing, which was to serve her the rest of her days. Now, her, her stinginess was legendary. Listen to some of this. On her 21st birthday, Hetty refused to light the candles on her birthday cake so as not to waste them. The next day, she wiped the cake off the candles and returned them for a refund. She argued over every bill she received, and her own string of lawyers routinely had to sue her to collect legal fees. She is said to have spent one night, all night, looking for a two-cent stamp that she misplaced. She lived in a series of grungy leased rooms, spending as little as $5 a week for living expenses. She'd walk out of her way to buy broken cookies in bulk. She wore the same dress day after day until it was in tatters, and when she absolutely had to wash the garment, she often instructed that it be laundered only from the bottom up, or from the waist down where it was dirtiest. dirtiest. Lunch would often be served, as it would be oatmeal warmed up on top of an office radiator. And then to top it all off, when her son Ned was 14, he dislocated his knee in a sledding mishap. Hetty refused to take him to the hospital, instead tried to treat the injury at home by visiting free clinics, and eventually her own son's leg had to be amputated. Her one extravagance seemed to be her dog, who ate better than Hetty. Unbelievable. True story. Hetty Green, worth $17 billion in today's money. Miser. Miser. We're reminded of the fool in Luke 12 who built bigger barns to store up grains and goods, thinking he had many years, and then one night the fool died. And the things you have prepared, Jesus said, um, whose will they be? So the under the sun rich man seeks riches for his own sake. He may use it for hedonism. Guys like this might try to get out of work, getting everyone else to do their work when they reach the top, and they hoard it for a a later day. And then under certain circumstances, here back to the context, it vanishes. A bad business deal goes awry. And then there's nothing to pass on, even to one's own son. So verses 15 to 17, now money can't satisfy because we're going to die. You're going to leave it all behind. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Does this remind you of Job? Although Job was a man of God. That's the difference. Extremely wealthy, he lost everything in a single day. If you go back and read the account, an enemy army came and killed his servants. They carried away his oxen, carried away his donkeys. Lightning that day killed his shepherds and all the sheep. Lightning, fire from the sky. Others killed who were his last standing servants. And they carried off his camels. And then a tornado, a strong wind, eventually killed all of his children who were partying at one of their birthday parties. Job, a believer, He lamented, but he said this, The Lord gave, 
and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Not the rich man. Not the rich man who lives under the sun. Job was a rich man who lived above the sun with a worldview that's above the sun. One bad venture at all slips through his hands. So he has no hope. Job Job had hope. The one true living God. The end result, verse 17, moreover, all his days he eats and this is this is a sad conclusion here. Moreover, all his days he eats and drinks in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is a disturbing visual picture of a broken man at the end of his life. Why? Because he lived his life giving full allegiance to mammon. He sacrificed everything and everyone for the love of money. And now he sits in a dark room all by himself. SDG&E has come. They shut off his lights. They shut off his gas. The house is in foreclosure. He sits there with one single bowl of oatmeal, so to speak. He's in dark. He's by himself, and he's bitter. He's bitter. All those so-called friends that he had all his life, they're nowhere to be found. This is his end. The love of money is vain. It can be lost in a number of ways. Disaster, disease, theft, bad business deal. So in the end, he realizes money has failed him, and it results in sickness, bitterness, and loneliness. You know, many people ruin their lives, and then they rage at God. You know, you can go to them, you can counsel them, you can plead with them. They will not listen. They're going down in flames. They don't care. They don't want to hear. And then they blame God. Look at Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. He blames God for his own folly. Proverbs 23.4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. It just goes away. Jesus said in John, Matthew 6, Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. He goes on. He goes on to finally say, You cannot serve God and mammon. So al- although the God of uh, money has failed, uh, the God of heaven never fails, amen? The one true God, Lord over all things, Lord over all people. So there's a much more excellent way of life. So, we're, we're not left with the doom and gloom of this man dwelling by himself in a dark house all outraged and bitter. We see an antidote provided here uh, against the love and pursuit of mammon and, and the evil eye of envy. When Jesus talks about the eye being good or the eye being bad in Matthew 6, it's the evil eye of envy. So here's the antidote, verse 18. Behold, What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Did you get that? Find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. This is the same conclusion in similar words that Solomon concluded with in chapter 2, if it sounds familiar. And that was in context of the pursuit of hedonism. 
pleasure at all costs. Avoid pain at all costs. Go after pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2.24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. In other words, it's a gift. Enjoy your work. Amen. Enjoy your work. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. If God makes it so that you become wealthy, praise the Lord, give to the church. (laughs) Nobody laughs at that one. (laughs) You get the point. So so the contrast is those who work not for uh, the promise, the false promises of mammon, but as means as a means to fulfill the necessities of life is given to us and delegated to us by the hand of the Lord. If we can be a faithful, humble man or woman, I'm using the the gifts God has given us, that's the antidote, and there's there's enjoyment in it. We can enjoy the goods given to us in this life. In verse 20, the preacher states the benefit of this godly way of living. He says, for he will not often consider. In other words, this. He's not going to brood over the years of his life. In other words, he's not going to go, oh man, man, I'm 51 now. I might only have 20 years to live. He's not tripping at all. Because God keeps him occupied with the, this is the NASB, with the gladness of his heart. So a theocentric worldview, our focus is completely different. It's on the will and the work of God and his provision for us. So life need not end in the dismal, bitter darkness of verse 17, having lived chasing after the wind, uh, pursuing wealth as a means in itself. But we can accept wealth as a gift from God. We can enjoy it. We can rejoice in the Lord who provided it. And we can use it for his glory and even our own enjoyment. So for all who turned to Christ by faith, who died for our transgressions, was raised for our justification, we are insured a a joyous, secure future. Guaranteed. Everlasting security. Everlasting wealth. That's real wealth. Amen? Eternal. So with a biblical, Christ-centered worldview... Although we know our days are numbered, our days are indeed brief, we will seldom reflect on the few days that are allotted to us. That's the idea. In other words, you're not going to be losing sleep at night because, oh, I know I'm going to die because you're not afraid of death. You'll, you'll rest well. Or you should. And I know some people have insomnia. That doesn't mean... That your focus is always, it doesn't mean that your focus is wrong. It could be some chemical thing. So don't misunderstand. Amen? Take Advil PM. (laughs) Take one, I would say. Unless you can sleep in the next morning, I've noticed. If you sleep in the next morning, then two are good. You know, if you have back pain or arthritis or something, yeah. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be, Jesus said, added unto you. So by God's grace, we can seek his face, we can seek his favor for his glory. We repent and we confess along the way. That's part of the Christian daily life, is it not? Repenting, confessing, moving on, and and thanking him for every good and perfect gift that comes from above. And then use it and enjoy it. Amen? And, you know, don't pursue 
Wealth is a means in itself. Pursue the Lord who provides all things, who's our all in all. Amen.